Welcome back to the Docu Podcast, Shadow of a Mercenary. I'm your host, Kevin E. West, and it's time to get on board and journey into the unique life of Verlin Siefkees, a Kansas crop duster who simply enjoyed painting his daughter's toenails on their porch. But hell, it's easy to be betrayed when no one knows you exist. As we say in Hollywood, Verlin, on to the next one. Here we go. So to set up where you're at at this point, we're talking mid-late summer 1980. At this point, you're in pretty deep with Mr. Carl London, his wife, the senatorial brother who owned a liquor store, literally named London Drugs, when his brother's a damn drug smuggler. I mean, damn, that is pretty funny. I told him, I said, uh, you really need to change the name of your drug, drugstore. So I think he changed the name. Did Carl drink a lot? Oh, he did his fair share. He drank quite a bit, yeah. He raised hell. Did he carry a gun? No, he didn't carry a gun. I carried a gun. Okay. Did you ever see Carl threatening, threatening anyone's life verbally? Oh, yeah, a couple times in, uh, in the Bahamas, police chief in the Bahamas. Okay. Did Carl's wife ever make a move on you? All the time. He joked about it. He said, now, she's my wife and your girlfriend. So, yeah, she made moves on me all the time. Did you ever take her up on it? Oh, sure. I may have relapsed and done that a couple times. Uh, I like how you say, oh, sure, I may have. So you either did or did not have uh, relations, as we'd say, with Carl's wife. It's a simple yes or no question. Oh, yeah, I did. So a little side fun with Madge, but now you've run off and married Kathleen when things are really going bad for your business, and you have finally made the decision to smuggle and carl sends you to meet mr bill cross senior give us the full skinny on good old cross senior well bill cross senior was a big old hillbilly with a beard but he was a refined hillbilly he, he donated to the judges there in cobb county he paid off a lot of people in different counties he was a smuggler he was a bookie he had a six thousand square foot house out by marietta and uh, he decided to get out of the moonshining and booking into the smuggling. Carl called and gave me Bill Cross's phone number. Said, do you need to go down and talk to Bill Cross? He's a good guy. He's okay. He's stand up. So I called Bill and flew down in my own airplane. And Bill picks me up, takes me out to the house. What was the feel and vibe of that meeting? Oh, it was kind of strange. I flew a, I had traded the one airplane and I had a turbo 210 Cessna by that time. And uh, it was a 220-knot airplane that didn't take long to get to Georgia. Marietta. Charlie Brown. You ever been to Charlie Brown Airport? I have been to Charlie Brown, yes. That's where I went to Charlie Brown. And so we went there, and, and he put us up in a hotel. Who's the us? You went with Kathleen? Yeah. Oh. oh yeah, I guess, yeah. Madge goes down to meet the cartel with Carl. Why wouldn't you take... Kathleen to meet Bill Cross. <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, I took, I took, took the kid and the kid along with me. It was a family affair. So you go to meet Bill Cross Sr. and you get out of your plane in Charlie Brown Airport and tell me tell me about it. Well, I just was an interesting character. Went tonight at his house and he had it all hooked up where he could cut all his wires and stuff. And he donated money to the governor and to the sheriff and to the 
politicians. He was a man of the community, as we'll say, wink, wink, up, nudge, nudge. Upstanding citizen. Upstanding citizen, yes. Bill Cross Sr. was a special citizen. He, he liked to give politicians and people money for, I'm sure, nothing. I'm sure he got nothing in return. So was your meeting with him for a day, for two days? What? No, we stayed up there a couple of days, stayed at his house. Like I said, it was 6,000 square foot horses, steam room. Yeah, nice little place up there. He put me up for a couple of days and talked to me about you know, what was going on, and that he needed a plane to do that. I said, well, I said, my plane's too small to do this. So he sent me to look at a plane in Paris, Texas, and that wasn't going to work. And so I got contacted a friend of mine, Charlie Stevens, and he needed to use a plane the size of my T-10, and I needed his big Navajo. So we traded, and I said, well, I only have it a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and how damn ridiculous that statement became uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, no. Too funny, man. So, okay, what was presented at that meeting by Cross Sr.? Oh, to fly, uh, you know, Quayley's back. From where to where? From, how? From Santa Marta to uh, Callaway Gardens in Georgia. So you fly down, pick up Santa Marta. Drop Callaway, come home. Yeah, that's the idea. That's the basic idea. I mean, it's first like, thing was to get a plane. He told me I wasn't going to use my airplane. First thing was, it, it's an economical unit. You got to pay off sheriffs. You have to pay off runways. You have to pay off different people on, on, down in Columbia as well as here, and uh, so it has to be a big enough load to make it worth everybody's time sure. and money. But you didn't you didn't know all of those particulars and details like you know about bugs and pest spray. So how did you get all of the knowledge of all the players and and how to move everything around the chessboard? You you had honestly not ever done anything like this before in your life. No, well I know you got time and distance, and I know when you overload airplanes, they take more fuel, and you run into headwinds, and there's volume, and there's useful loads, and how much weight they'll carry, and how big the boxes are. So you know how many boxes you can put in there and how much fuel you need to have and whether you need to refuel or whether you need to put a rubber fuel bladder in the airplane so that you can make the distance. Illegal fuel systems. Yes, sir. I got that part. Overload the airplane. So if an airplane is designed to carry, it's called useful load, which is people, fuel, and cargo. Mm -hmm. I got the airplane where I called double that. Super. I overloaded it. Right. And so, in this scenario, um, you didn't have a plane for this. But at the time, that's not you couldn't exactly go get a stranger's plane to do what you were about to do. No, I went back and borrowed a friend of mine. Who was the guy? <laughs> Charlie Stevens in Salina. He was a highway contractor. What did you tell good old Charlie Stevens? I said I had a contract and I needed to haul more weight than... Than my T10 at all. So we might have needed to go a little less than completely transparent on this particular transaction. <laughs> and he said, I need to borrow the T10 for a week or two. I'll trade you the airplanes. See, perfect reciprocation. It was honest. It was awesome. But I mean, I, from what you're saying, it doesn't sound to me too much like good old Charlie's plane was necessarily ready to make that trip. Did you have to do anything to the plane? Yeah, you take up four screws on the floorboards and you separate the fuel line and you put a T in the fuel line so you can take the rubber bladder and just plug it in to the fuel line. It's got to be in the right line. So you were going to borrow a friend's plane for a couple of weeks 
and you were going to modify this man's plane without his knowledge, right? Yeah, it doesn't take very long. <laughs> okay. Now you just put it back the way it was when it's over with. That's correct. Yes, I'm, I'm clear on that. Uh, so, you know, he borrows your Cessna, you borrow his plane. It's like, it's like you know what, it's just like getting a cup of milk and a cup of sugar from a neighbor. Here's the question, because I'm... I'm fairly clear at this point that that you're. This is a desperate act. You're in a desperate place at this time, professionally, personally. You don't have money to go see your daughter. You have a, a relatively new wife um, who's on the trip with you, etc. And you have tried everything you can try. What are you supposed to make out of this, Verlin? What's a what's a quote unquote run going to get you? Well, for doing that, for playing quarter million dollars a run. You would have made a quarter million dollars. Flat, clean, net, done. Yeah. That might be hard to say no to. But once I committed to that, you know, here I've got another guy's airplane. I can't afford to get caught with it. I can't afford to let him know what I've done to it. I got to get it back, put it back the way it was, give it back to him and trade planes back. So once I committed to that far, then I'm stuck. And like I said, I want to do three quick loads take 10 days or two weeks and have it over with, pay production credit off, and have it said and done. Can you recall, Verlin, about uh, how much it costs to modify the plane for smuggling at that time and, and how long it took? Oh, expense-wise, it wasn't very much. It just needed a few uh, fittings for the fuel system and an additional external fuel pump. And so probably at the most four grand to modify it, probably three to four hours to do it. And the first time after that, it, it took five minutes to plug in the extra fuel in. Wow. Uh, did you ever dismantle Charlie Stevens' planes from the modifications you made when you borrowed it? No, when he picked it up and brought it back to Salina, uh, the mechanic there uh, took the modifications out of it. So I didn't take it back. So when you say the mechanics there, who are the mechanics and where are you talking about? Uh, Jerry, Charlie had an aviation business there too. He had a uh, highway contracting company and he bought an aviation business. It was uh, maintenance and sales and uh, service aircraft where they pulled in, you know, give them fuel, park them, that type of thing. He had a bunch of mechanics back there and Jerry was the chief mechanic. So all those mechanics would have known what was going on. They would have known what you were doing. Yeah, just Jerry. He's not the one that modified the aircraft. A uh, guy in Alabama did that. So, Okay, I'm just saying these are people you would have had to trust. That's all. They would have known what you were doing. Oh, yeah. Once he saw the damn thing and the fittings, he would have known what I was doing with it. I got to ask, Verlin, because we've referenced him a couple of times. If Randy Schlitter, Ray's son was such a naturally talented engineer, why didn't you have him just modify the Panther? And if no, how come? Well, Randy designed aircraft. He wasn't a mechanic, and he designed ultralight, and he was eccentric. He was, he designed things. He wasn't a mechanic. He didn't work on engines and things like that. I mean, he did the airplane and the rigging, but he had nothing to do with engines and fuel flow and things like that. He didn't have a, and this was a big airplane, and uh, he didn't have any experience with it. So I got the plane, took it down to, down to Bill Cross. Well, I didn't know the feds were watching Bill Cross at the time. or I would, And I didn't know how the game was played, 
or I'd have just worked for the government right off the bat. So Bill's running a bunch of bullshit, and he said he's got his connections. The connections was Carl, because they were from the same area. He was talking to him on the ham radio in his house all the time. And uh, Bill had a son, right? Well, Bill had a son, Billy Cross Jr. Well, he was about 6'3 and 250, and he strutted around, and he was the pride of his daddy's eyes. Of course, he was useless, but that's beside the point. But he was uh, kind of a buffoon and wanted to act tough, you know, like, well, I'm taking karate lessons. I said, well, that's good, you know. He was trying to work into the business with daddy. And how did his dad help him work into the business? Oh, gave him things to do. Go meet this guy, go meet that guy, go pick this up over here. How did he involve you in it? Oh, he sent Billy along as a co-pilot. How many times did he go along with you as a co-pilot? What was the trip? trip was to go to, to Santa Marta and pick up quaaludes and bring them back to Georgia. So he went with me... Uh, one time is all and that was on the way back he had a device to detect a bug on the airplane if the DEA had bugged the airplane he had the little device to tell if the airplane was bugged the problem was they didn't activate the bug till we were back in the states and then the little device goes off and so it was too late then so Bill Cross Jr. was on the plane with you when you got arrested by the feds copy you on Jr. oh boy uh, but let's mix in some quick character flavor because all of this is just doesn't happen by itself. There had to be, you know, a few helpers. And my my favorite name of your entire story is this guy, Bobby Nutter. Uh, how how did Mister Nutter mix into all of this? He was their gopher, Bobby Nutter. Oh, he was he was high all the time, or drugged out, or spaced out. He walked, we called him the Penguin. He walked around like a little robot and uh, with sunglasses on just strange shaped guy kind of a shape like a bell or like the penguin we called him and he waddled down the hallway and go he was Bill's gopher go do this go do that pick this up pick that up he wasn't he was real low level he wasn't particularly good for anything except for that and I wouldn't have trusted him <laughs> Well, sounds like a guy who would, who could fall asleep while he was walking. He was asleep while he was walking. You should have seen it. It's hard to describe. And while we're on the subject of sleeping, tell the listeners about the whole Verlin has premonition dreams. Sometimes you would have nightmares, and you know or what you called premonitions, related to specific events, right? They were from some form of a gut instinct, but... When did that first happen in your life, Ferlin? Oh, God, I can remember the first one when I was back in, like a freshman in high school that really stood out. It was uh, on a trip to the Dakotas with a parent's vacation, summer vacation, mm -hmm. and I dreamed I was in a gas station, and there was a water fountain on the west wall. I still remember the dream. The bay doors were on the south. And he walked in, and the water fountain was on the west side, and then there was a, you go in, there was a notch, and there's all the V-belts for the fan belts hanging up on the wall. It's a detail. Never been there before in my life. Are you telling me that when you went on the trip, you saw this gas station? Yeah, walked in there. It's exactly the way I dreamed it. 
before you went on the trip. Before I went on the trip. How many days later when you walked in and saw the place? Oh, maybe a month. Wow. Um, so that happened to you in your freshman in high school. When did it happen later in life more that you would view these dreams a certain way? Oh, it just, it's gotten more pronounced. The hair just stands up on the back of my neck. Well, I'll be honest with you, Verlin. It sure would have been nice if you'd had, had maybe more dreams about old Max Nichols because he was the devil in your life. And yet, at this point, as we discussed earlier, you did charters with him, and you kind of think Max is a friend of yours, right? Yeah, but he was... I'd watch him close. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what he was doing. In other words, I knew who, what kind of guy he was. I was careful. Right. So you were aware of his character, yeah. let's say, when you met him. And let's reinsert his sleazy partner, Brock McPherson. Let's not let him off the hook right here to go along with him again how did you meet brock or know of him my mother was friends with his wife but brock i never did meet brock almost was disbarred for the shit that he pulled later on he filed for false documents for max with the judge and a bunch right. of other things and so you never physically met brock no he was <laughs> I stayed away, otherwise he would have, his demise would have been a lot earlier than it was. Oh, I see. So you were aware uh, of oh, his... Oh, yeah, he was crooked. He filed false documents. He filed false things. His malpractice insurance had to pay off, but he only had $100,000 malpractice insurance, and the attorneys didn't want to take it any higher, and Max had to cough up another $35,000, $40,000 for being in bed with him. But this must have happened much later in life. This it was is. not happening in 78. No, it wasn't happening in 78, but... He asked me about Brock, and I said he's... Right. So that's part of where you're at with Brock comes a little bit later in, in your life, correct? Yeah, I didn't have to deal with him then, no. Right. So you just, your association with Max Nichols was just as a charter client. It yeah, just was an oil guy, a uh, pipeline guy that you flew around and had conversation with, and you know he was a little shaky and all that, but he was paying your bills, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I... Spray tier three pivot systems for him and take him four or five places. Okay. He paid some. He was a decent client. How many flights do you recall actually taking Max on before you met Bill Cross? How many times were you in a plane with him? Oh, 10 or 12 flights, I imagine. I'd fly him to Dallas and I'd fly him different places to, uh, you know, he might bid on something or look for equipment or check on a crew he had working or pick up a part out of Dallas. So, right. And now he, he had, he had some farm, he had some farmland. So I sprayed his, uh, two or three irrigation systems for him. Right. Can you, can you recall Verlin, like what the length of time it was from the first charter flight to the 12th charter flight, just guessing like what length of time would that have been? Do you think 12 months, 18 months? Oh, 24, 36 months. Okay, one thing on Max before we go, even his wife didn't like him. So there you go. Okay, well, that explains a lot about Max. Uh, that's <laughs> for sure. Did you, did you ever talk to Marianne about making this decision? I mean, you're literally telling me that it was kind of like prophetic that 
It was harmonic convergence that you had this thought in your head about, well, if Carl told me now, I'd probably do it. And he literally called the same day, right? Yeah, so he did. He called the same day. No, I never said any of that. Okay. So you just made the decision. You didn't speak to her about it. Okay. And you didn't yeah. really talk to Marianne about it at all while it was going on prior to being arrested, right? No, I didn't talk to her about it at all. She was a, she was kind of out of the picture the whole thing, you know, by that time. Did Chrissy ever hang around with you and, and any of the crop dusting boys locally? Chrissy hung around with us. We'd get together. Uh, you know, we'd have a convention or a meeting, and she'd go, she'd go with us to the meeting. There was basically only five or six guys that I really associated with. That, uh, you know, I knew all the rest of, but there was only five or six that were in the close circle that were that were good and you know had up to date equipment and did everything right. That was the group I was associated with. We did things together. We worked with each other. We get behind. We'd help each other out, and that's the bunch. Uh, she was associated with. Did she ever meet any of the characters associated with all of this other stuff in any way? Cross, Max, the government, anybody? Did she have any engagement with anyone once you went to Panama City Beach to get your instrument rated license? She met Max. She didn't meet anybody else. Did she like Max? She never said. He's kind of abrasive. Not that many people liked him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, uh, if if your own wife doesn't like you, then there's a really good chance an 8- to 12-year-old girl probably isn't going to either. Shit, that's funny. Uh, would you honestly say, Verlin, that Christy was your main motivation for finally choosing to be a smuggler? I mean, did you ever have a cognitive thought, I'm doing this for my daughter? Well, yes, I, I thought about it, and uh, I turned the offer down a couple times, and in production credit, had been to the office and were jamming me up and I said it I wish the hell Carl would call about now. I'd go do it and get him off my get him off my fucking back. And I'll be damned if Carl didn't call the same day. If it had been three or four days later or three or four days before that, uh, you know, I may not have done it. <clears throat> but he had to call just at that particular time. If you were such a straight-laced, good old boy, simple Kansas ex-Marine crop-dusting farm boy whose hero was all-good-all-the-time all John Wayne, Berlin, how could you justify being so close of friends, becoming such close friends with a guy at that time in 1977 with a guy like Carl London? Before any of this shit went down, I'm, I'm asking you, you go to Panama City just to get an instrument-rated pilot, right? You meet a guy. You know all this stuff about him based on you and your John Wayne, and yet you still become friends. How, do you, how, how did you do that? Just because he was cool and fun or different? Oh, he was really likable. He was a veteran. He was an Air Force captain, flew C-130s. I mean, he was a real likable guy. Everybody liked him. Okay, everybody liked him. I guess I'll have to accept it, but I, I'll tell you right now, I wish I'd been your friend back then to get you to require a bit more than that. <laughs> so, all right, now we're getting close to the end of this episode and, and we start getting into the area to really get into the details of the beginning of that life. And I'm doing that in air quotes uh, that you've now chosen for yourself to smuggle. So before we do that, uh, so it's fresh in everyone's mind, let's, let's set the table about Carl, Alligator Alley, and the cash cow you were trying to create. Did Carl ever ask you to do something illegal directly for him prior to becoming a double agent for the government? Oh, yeah. I, 
I gave money to his cousin, to his wife, and uh, moved an airplane or two and met him a couple places. And, uh, you know, I had the phone number. Yeah, well, hell, it was all illegal. You were a mule for him sometimes. Well, yeah, he was a fugitive in South America. So I'd meet a guy from Alligator Alley, and he'd be driving up the road to Atlanta, and I'd meet him, and he'd pull out. 25, 30 grand from his dash and his pickup, and I'd give it to Madge so she had living money. Can you please just quickly describe very briefly what Alligator Alley means to the general public? What is that? Well, it's the bottom half of Florida, the Everglades, the swamps, and they call it Alligator Alley. There's just a couple roads running through it, and, uh, you know, they have their sugarcane fields and that type of thing. And there's a road that runs between Miami and, and uh, the, the west side of Florida. And that particular area they call Alligator Alley because it's full of alligators. And there's not much out there, just sugar cane and swamp. And smugglers. <laughs> and smugglers. Tell me exactly who the Black Tuna Gang was and how they got their name. Well, they were one of the first uh, smuggling gangs in Miami. And I forget how the hell they got the name the Black Tuna, to be honest with you. They were just called the Black Tuna. And Carl got roped into them because of Panama City at Seoul Aviation getting flight instruction. He honed in on Carl and talked him into flying loads. They were the Black Tuna gang. It was just a gang in South Florida that I didn't have any involvement with. But Carl did. A big group of smugglers. Roger Copy. Got it. And... Your plan was to make three runs, make three quarters of a million dollars, get out of debt. And what were, the, what were you thinking about doing at that moment? If it, if it had just gone that way, Verlin, if you had made the three loads and you made that money clean net, which you were promised, what would you have done if you paid off production credit? What do you think you would have done? Oh, I'd have gone back and just crop dust. And any extra money I made, I'd have bought another quarter or two of land and Called it a day. Raised the alfalfa on the section of land and cr did crop dusting uh, the rest of the time. And that concludes yet another tremendous docu-podcast episode for Shadow of a Mercenary, the life story of one Verlin Keys. I'm your host, Kevin E. West. Please subscribe, share it with friends, and until next time, stay safe and smart. <laughs>